Hello and welcome to the Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trusts Handbook, and your host for this weekly look at all things to do with investment trusts. We are an independent organisation, but to save the regulators from doing so, please let me remind you that this podcast is provided for information and educational purposes only, and nothing you hear from any of the speakers today should be regarded as constituting investment advice. Perish the thought. It was a short trading week again this week because of the Easter holiday, but also a positive one with equity markets continuing to rally after short, sharp decline in mid-March caused by those troubles in the banking sector. The UK uh, equity indices up around 2%, and Japanese markets had the best of the performance. The latest US inflation figures showing a decline in producer prices and core inflation helped sentiment over in the US. Bond yields rose across the curve, however, with six-month treasuries in the US now offering a competitive yield of around 5%, and the tenure up at around 3.9%. Gilts were also firmer, while commodities, including oil and copper, were also up, while gold consolidated its position above that uh, potentially significant $2,000 an ounce mark. In the investment trust sector, the index of close-end funds finally put in a positive week, up around 1.5%, and the average discount on the index coming in from 16.3% to 15.4%, a welcome reversal of trend. Trust rising more than 5% this week uh, included a number of growth capital, smaller company and property names, suggestive of a general greater tolerance for risk. Only 15% or so of the 400-odd trusts that I track recorded falls in share prices, and those falls were mostly limited in scope. To discuss all this this week and to take a look in greater depth at what has been uh, happening in the commercial property sector, which has been in the eye of the storm created by rising bond yields in the final part of last year, I'm joined this week by Marcus Fair-Mudge, the long-serving manager of TR Property, ticker TRY a £900 million market capitalisation trust, which only has a small interest in direct property investment, unlike most of the commercial property sector, but invests mainly in property equities across the UK and Europe. And then secondly, I'm joined on a different topic by John Forster, the co-manager of Impact's Environmental Markets, ticker IEM, one of the real pioneers in sustainable investing that first listed back in 2002 long before ESG and uh, climate change and energy transition became as significant as they are today in determining investor behaviour. There were not many results from Trust this week, and those there were were mainly from smaller vehicles. Those annual results, though, did include Martin Curry Global Portfolio, ticker MNP, uh, which reported a disappointing NAV total return of minus 8.8% against its uh, MSCI All Country World Index benchmark, which was effectively flat in the period. Also from ECOFIN US Renewables Infrastructure, ticker RNEW, one of the last renewable energy trusts to report its uh, 2022 full-year results, showing a 1.1% NAV total return, somewhat less than the better-performing names in that sector, and a just-covered 5.6 cent dividend. And from GCP Asset-Backed Income, ticker GABI, a debt trust which had an NAV total return of 1.9%, which is slightly lower than the previous year, but saw its lead manager leave towards the end of the year, paid an uncovered dividend, and saw its discount widen out sharply 
to uh, well over 10%, despite a number of share repurchases. And finally, also from Marble Point Loan Financing, ticker MPLF, another specialist debt vehicle, whose results showed an NAV total return of minus 17% in 2022, another victim of the uh, rising bond yield phenomenon. In November last year, shareholders approved an interesting proposal to create biannual liquidating share classes, which would entitle shareholders who join those vehicles to 25% of its income distributions. This trust pays out a significant amount in income from its activities, but last year saw that matched by a rather significant capital value decline. Another trust that's been buying back shares is Schroeder Japan Growth, ticker SJG, which reported a 5.3% NAV total return in its latest interim figures, slightly ahead of its benchmark, and it confirmed that it's changing its name to Schroeder Japan, in other words, dropping the growth element in its name to better reflect its management's investment style, the board says, although it's keeping that uh, SJG ticker. Uh, We also had updates of various kinds from uh, Literacy Capital, Caledonia Investments, Rockwood Strategic, the Gulf Investment Fund, and four property trusts, LXI REIT, ticker LXI, Value and Index Property Income, ticker VIP, Schroeder European Real Estate, and PRS REIT. More details on most of these are available, as usual, on the Moneymakers website for subscribers to the Moneymakers Circle, with links to the relevant announcements. On the news front, the most interesting corporate news was the fact that Ashoka White Oak Emerging Markets, which is run by the same firm as Ashoka India Equity, one of the strong-performing Indian investment trusts, is looking to raise £100 million in an IPO, and a prospectus will be published on 18th of April, with the shares expected to begin trading in the first week of May, assuming that it gets off the ground. That would be a good test of investors' appetite, given the relative dearth of IPOs we've had since the start of last year. Like Ashoka's Indian Trust, interestingly, there will be no fixed management fee, just a performance fee for the management firm. That's an unusual structure, which has been used before, but not always with exemplary results. Uh, With the property sector in mind, given my conversation with uh, Marcus Fairmudge that's coming up, worth noting that LXI REIT said it had completed the refinancing of its near-term debt and was increasing its dividend target by 4.8% to 6.6 pence a share. The concerns about the uh, trust's debt have been uh, one of the factors behind it moving out to a not inconsiderable discount recently. And VIP, that is Value and Indexed Property Income, said it had now completed its transition to become a fully invested property company, having shed the equity portfolio that used to run alongside its uh, property investments for many years. Also relevant on the property scene, following last week's provisional announcement, Blackstone, the big US private equity house, has now made a recommended cash offer at 168p per share for Industrials REIT, valuing it at £511 million. It's received undertakings and letters of intent to the tune of 28.7% of shareholders so far. And then finally, on the news front, separately from uh, the property sector, Roundhill Music Royalty, ticker RHM, uh, released details of a second independent valuation of its music catalogues and said its portfolio was, quote, significantly undervalued, while it continues to trade at around a discount of 50%. Not dissimilar to that of Hypnosis Songs, ticker S-O-N-G, 
the other large trust in that relatively new specialist sector. Next week, I'm away for most of the week on holiday, but there will be a podcast as normal. This week's profile for subscribers to the Moneymaker Circle is of Fidelity European, the uh, large European equity trust, and that'll be followed uh, next week by Greencoat UK Wind, ticker UKW. Today, if you hear this uh, podcast on a Saturday, I shall be speaking at the Master Investor Show, and next week I will be also making available the slides that I show in my presentation at that event. It's been a while since I've had the chance to uh, talk to Marcus Fairmuch, who is the manager of the TR Property Investment Trust, a unique vehicle in the investment trust space, which invests in property company equities across Europe uh, and also has a small direct property portfolio. Marcus, you've been involved in this team since uh, 1997 and you've been the lead manager since 2011. So you've been through uh, the good times and the bad times. And uh, I guess one has to say 2022 was a pretty terrible year for anybody involved in the property sector. We might talk about why that seems to court some investors and some property companies on the hop. But what was your experience going into the big sell-off that we saw last year? Did you anticipate it at the start of the year? Uh, Jonathan, good morning, and thank you. It's an excellent opening question. I would say that, unfortunately, we didn't anticipate the speed of the correction in the market in terms of expectation of how quickly the cost of money would move. I think that's how we we knew that it was rising. We knew that inflation was was clearly becoming embedded. But we took quite a lot of solace from the market fundamentals, because at the end of the day, two things damage real estate uh, in the short run. One is a rapid increase in the cost of money, which is what we've seen. The other, which has affected us in various cycles over the last you know, 25 years, is actually is overdevelopment or a sudden change in, in demand for a subsector. And we've seen that, certainly we've experienced that in the last decade or so in retail property, and maybe we'll touch on that a bit later. But I think what I got wrong, let's be blunt about it in 22, was a feeling that the underlying fundamentals of demand and supply, that resilience would be reflected in the popularity of the sector. And actually that essentially got ignored. The market focused entirely and to some extent, quite rightly, on the cost of debt. And we then, certainly by the middle of the year, rapidly rolled out uh, the 2008 playbook, which essentially is to, was to focus on the liability side of the balance sheet of all of our companies. Okay, so you couldn't escape it, or at least you, you might have done a little bit better than you did. So the NAV was down very sharply. I mean, we're talking about a significant decline. But then, of course, we were starting from a position where money was effectively free for a long period. And that was obviously a very good time. So to some extent, you've only given back some of the good times, have you not? But looking forward, I mean, there's two things. I mean, we know that uh, commercial property is a, is a real asset. It's meant to at least maintain its value uh, over time against inflation. But what are we most worried about in the short term? What is the market being most worried about? You mentioned the debt. I mean, is it just the debt or is it the fact that there may well be a recession? And that's not good for the property sector either, is it? Yeah, I mean, our, our, we've, we've done a huge amount of work on this and also there's a, a lot of empirical evidence. Essentially, recessions, if they are relatively shallow, 
tend to have remarkably little impact on the valuation of, of real estate. Companies don't make decisions about the amount of space they're going to use or about their expansion or contraction plans if they think that a recession is a relatively short-lived or mild event or they can see that it's uh, been driven by external factors that are going to pass through. And that's very much our experience uh, at the moment, particularly in you know, our, our favoured uh, subsectors at the moment, areas like logistics, big box or last mile, urban logistics, multi-let industrial, self-storage, uh, even CBD offices and we'll come on to all these sectors later, are all doing really quite well. We're actually still seeing rental growth. So what's so unusual about this point in the cycle is we have yields rising because the cost of money is rising, but we also have rental growth. And, you know, when you look at the reporting of so many of our companies, they've actually, for the vast majority, they've got robust top line growth, which is not what you'd expect to see. So the short answer is if the recessions is mild, we see very little negative impact. If it's deeper, and that's driven through into particularly uh, unemployment, and essentially you've got the tills ringing less in the shops or, or virtually online and less bums on seats in buildings, then clearly that's where you see a much greater impact. But we're not at this stage anticipating a deep recession. Okay, so if you're not anticipating a deep recession, you presumably expect inflation to come down. That's what everybody is saying anyway. Would you therefore expect the cost of money to come down as well? I mean, we've had this issue last year in the UK in particular with the, with the trust government debacle, and that had a bigger impact on gilts than some other parts of Europe. But are you actually thinking that one of the case for looking at property now, we're going to talk about why there might be a good case for property now and the kind of activity you're engaged in, is the fact that uh, this cost of debt might actually come down from here. Yeah, we can't get away from the fact that we had a decade of gloriously zero or effectively zero cost of money, and that particular punch bowl has been taken away. And there have been lots of reasons why we've hit double-digit inflation. All of your audience will be aware of that. Our central case is that inflation comes down, but that it does actually unfortunately remain quite sticky. And that's essentially because we have very high levels of employment. We are suffering, particularly in the UK, the consequences of Brexit. There are increasing transactional costs and friction being built in, you know, elements of deglobalization, onshoring, nearshoring. All of this actually is attractive for real estate because it creates demand for space. But it does also mean that we think that pricing and the transition of pricing through to goods and services will continue to have inflationary pressure. Now, if we settle that, yeah, somewhere twice what the central bank would want, so 4% rather than 2 we think that that's going to result in the central banks calming down in terms of the pace at which they're moving rates. We may even still see peak rate, bank rate uh, in 2023. But two things are going to happen. One, we're going to be there at that sort of elevated rate relative to short-term history is going to persist. But of course, that's not that aggressive a rate relative to the long-term history. I mean, the IMF report yesterday about rates returning back to zero. Yes, I suppose once you take into into demographics and look at it over 30 or 40 years, they may well be right. But that's not the time frame that your readers and listeners are thinking about. So our central case is it's sustained somewhere in the reason of um, base rates are circa four, UK, maybe you know, a bit lower in, in Europe. But that actually this inflation remains sticky. And that's why you come back to needing an element of your portfolio to owning you know, real assets, but most importantly, making sure that you can capture essentially index-linked income uh, as part of that. 
Well, also cutting to the chase then, I mean, you invest in property equities. We saw the share prices of property equities fall very sharply, almost in a kind of straight line until about the start of the fourth quarter. Uh, since then, there's been a bit of a rally, and then they've sold off again more last few weeks. I guess the 64 million, whatever it is, question is going to be, has the market priced in all the bad things that have already happened and might still be about to happen? Yeah, I think the two observations there, the first is that 2022 was a nightmare for a stock picker, bottom-up stock picker like myself, because basically everything went beta one. Uh, the market threw the baby out with the bathwater. Uh, and babies come in different shapes and sizes and quality. Um, and unfortunately, in this case, a- everything just got thrown out. And then we started to see, as you pointed out in the fourth quarter, you know, the market start to quite rightly distinguish between those companies where their balance sheets, they, you know, they had a finance director where he or she was well worth every penny of what they were paid because they'd thought about this and essentially a bit like you being smart enough to take out a, a five-year fixed mortgage a year ago at 1%. Those were the sort of property companies, commercial companies that I wanted to to, to own rather than uh, anybody who was sitting there with a huge amount of floating rate debt um, and suffering the consequences immediately. Then, of course, what's happened in the first quarter of 23, as you said, that rally ran really from October to the end of January. And then February and March, what we've seen is two things. One has been a resurgence of a concern about that maybe inflation was stickier than we thought and that central banks were going to have to keep on raising rates. But what's been much more impactful for us has been, of course, this issue around Credit Suisse and Silicon Valley Bank and the markets start to be concerned about margin and the availability of debt. And we think as we move into the second quarter, the market's going to calm down. It's going to realize that actually an awful lot of listed property companies, by the way, have an average between them of, of uh, loans to value. And if this is on written down values, uh, given that values have come down a lot in the fourth quarter, those LTVs are still well below 40%. And in many of our companies are in the 20s. Now, there are an awful lot of private property companies and private equity backed fund structures who would sell their granny for the right to have leverage at that low. And they're all running around with sort of 60 or 70%. And they're going to get into real problems because when they go back to the bank for a refi, the bank's going to say, we've got quite a lot of equity cure here. Now, we don't think in back to the listed space, but we actually, A, we're in a better place, but B, and we keep hearing this, you know, that all the quality banks are not in any form of distress. They, they, they continue to want to lend money. Now, they want their pound of flesh. They always do for that. So margins, which have gone way, way elevated, are going to calm down again. And there will be casualties. There are certainly businesses that in, even in the listed space have too much debt and too much near term refi. But the market's very pure and it has really, really taken a, a knife to the share price of those types of businesses. So what we've got at the moment, we've got some companies that we think have been oversold, some of them quite heavily, and we're back reinvesting in those. And then at the same time, we've had one or two that on the face of it look incredibly cheap, but they are cheap for a reason. They are, The market doesn't like the risk associated or the risk of that refi. But I must you know, reinforce the fact that relative to the private property market, actually, I think that the, some listed companies are going to find themselves being the beneficiary of one or two forced sellers. Okay, so there'll be opportunities to pick up things at a distressed price. Correct. Yeah. Well, that's an encouraging thought. Have you changed a lot in your portfolio as a result of this kind of thinking? You said you took some action last year, but in terms of distinguishing those companies which have got their balance sheets wrong or have got financing issues, have you made a significant amount of changes in your portfolio as a result? 
That's a great question because essentially, yes, we certainly in Q3 last year rotated quite heavily away from you know, the most indebted part of our world, which is essentially the Swedish property companies. And the, the line I always use with investors is that the nation that brought you the safest car brings you the scariest uh, listed property companies because they've always operated with high levels of debt and an awful lot of it short term. Now, if you talk to any Swedish finance director, they, they will say to you, well, that's fine because when the economy is booming, we are making money out of uh, increased rents and therefore we don't mind paying more debt. Um, and we're not going to pay the banks for a whole lot of forward hedging structures. And by the way, because the Swedish banks uh, have always been there, even during the GFC, um, it's quite a sort of closed economy in that respect. They've always known they've been able to get lending. I can understand from on one level why they always run like that. But of course, this time they've run into some quite significant problems because rents aren't really rising that much and their cost of debt is. So we avoided that. However, if I had been short the Swedish market uh, into January, when the world suddenly decided things were going to get a lot better and we'd seen peak rate, etc., you saw an improvement in that subsector alone of over 25% in one month. So huge amount of volatility. So unfortunately, the short answer to your question is yes, we've rotated lots of the portfolio. If you take a snapshot, uh, March 22 and March 23, when you look at our two annual reports, which are due to be published in May, you'll be thinking, oh, Marcus doesn't appear to have made that many changes. The fact is we've changed an awful lot, but we have now come back. Uh, into a situation where, for example, German residential, we are back owning this particular subsector, which we had sold down significantly in the last quarter of last year. Well, that brings on to a question. Well, you made a point, I think, in the interims about the fact that there was a sort of paradox in the sense that the sectors that you think have the best fundamentals are the ones that sold off most during the big sell-off last year. And that included the industrials and some residential, I think. Those are the two you mentioned. So what you're saying is basically those fundamentals have brought you back into those particular sectors uh, now. Well, the fundamentals have brought me back into the sector. But again, I've been incredibly selective on which companies. Now, some have completed discounted rights issues to bolster their balance sheet, a business like TAG, which is um, it owns a lot of German residential in the old East Germany. So, it's, you know, it's relatively uh cheap rents and low value property, but very much, you know, supplying a, in fact, there's more demand than supply there. Um, you know, cities such as Dresden and Leipzig, et cetera. So we, we were back into that business. We continue to own Phoenix Free Deutschland, which owns only Berlin, um, where the fundamentals are incredibly strong. And yet the shares are trading at a 50% discount to asset value, more 60% discount. And that is a company that the board have made a statement that they will be liquidating uh, some assets and returning capital to shareholders. So for me, that's the sort of business that fundamentally is very sound. It's a relatively small portfolio. Um, on the other hand, the very large names, Venovia and LEG, you know, they've got a lot of debt to refinance in the coming years, and that's going to be costly. Um, I would say I'm more attracted to the industrial sector where we see the market fundamentals remain incredibly strong. With German residential, the attraction is its stability. And it's stable because rents are held artificially low because they're restricted, they're regulated and they grow, but they grow relatively slowly in the Mitch Spiegel will be you know, circa two to two and a half percent again this year when you look at it collectively. Meanwhile, on the industrial side, we and our experience in our own portfolios and in the companies we own. Rental growth is still you know, steaming along, particularly for urban logistics and multi-let industrial. And it's absolutely no surprise that Blackstone have come and bid a significant premium last week for industrial REIT. Now, industrial REIT is a great little business. We own in the trust 11% of the company. 
Pre-bid, it was about 3.5% of our assets. It's now 4.5% of our assets temporarily before the deal goes through. But that's a classic case where the stock market allowed a, a company to languish on a large discount to its asset value because it's you know a relatively small business. And um, yet we felt it was extremely well run. It had a very good debt structure. And Blackstone will be able to use the industrial REITs operating platform across a huge amount of its own industrial assets. And that really comes to the nub of things, Jonathan. And I, as you can see, for anybody who wants to go onto the TR Property website and look at our most recent presentation, you'll see a slide which looks at mergers and acquisitions, privatizations, and also consolidation in the sector. And essentially, owning listed property companies is just another way of owning real estate. And way more real estate in the world is owned privately than publicly. And if the public markets are going to allow these shares to become too cheap, then private equity will come and take them out, which is what they did lots of in 2021 and start of 22. And then, of course, they've had a pause and now they're back again. And they're back for the high quality businesses. So, you know, if you want to look at an underpin, you ask me to persuade you why you should be buying shares in TR property today. You know, our world is standing on a 30% discount to its asset value. The TR props is then standing on a 10% discount to that discounted number. And I'm just showing you about a company that's been taken out at a 40% premium to the undisturbed share price. And when you start to think about it, there may be some more reasons to be cheerful. I was going to mention the industry because, I mean, that was a wake-up call, I thought, for the sector, basically. It did shows that there are people out there who are prepared to come in at these prices and pay a premium, though I think the price they're paying is still lower than the peak share price that we saw back in the day before the big sell-off. I was also going to ask you about another property in which you have a significant stake, which is uh, Edison Property, where I think you've got more than 10% there as well. And they recently came out and said, as I interpreted it, we're an investment trust, we're not big enough to make a splash in the investment trust world, and therefore we'd like to do a merger with somebody else. That's consolidation. So you're thinking we'll see more of that as well. Can I ask whether you were active in that uh, outcome? Well, I think like all good politicians, I don't always answer the question directly. I think the first point to make, and I will answer it, Jonathan, but the first point to make is that absolutely, we want to keep these assets in the listed space. So I applaud the board for making the point in the statement that they are open to you know, merger with another listed company. Because ultimately, what do your listeners want if they do want exposure to real estate? They want to be able to get in, buy the market when they want to buy the market and sell the market. And if they come and pick a specialist stock picker like myself or a more general vehicle, whatever it may be, they still want to be able to get exposure to what is ultimately an illiquid underlying fundamental asset, but they want liquid exposure. And that means we need more companies in the listed space and we need bigger companies. So essentially, I applaud the board for what they've done. Um, yes, I certainly had no information as to when or how or what the board were going to say on the subject, but I have made my thoughts known to a number of, of boards over the years as to you know, whether they should be part of bigger companies. And, you know, we owned 5% of Mucklow, which merged with London Metric. We own 10% of Mackay Securities that was acquired by Workspace. So we were really pleased that those are great businesses, which remained in the listed sector as part of larger companies. And, and shareholders have undoubtedly benefited um, from that. And in the case of Mackay, there was a cash component, which was there as well. But you certainly got some Workspace shares along the way. In the case of Mucklow, you, you kind of got a choice. And we actually took paper. So, yeah, I very much feel that 
you know, what's TR Properties edge if it has one? It is this ability because it's closed ended permanent capital. I can absorb that short term volatility when shares become temporarily very unpopular and either they recover their popularity or private markets come along and take them out or other companies come and take them out. So, you know, one of the reasons we had such a difficult year last year is that my small companies, which I obviously didn't want to sell at deeply distressed discounted pricing, as I said, those babies got thrown out with the bathwater, but they're now busily climbing back into the bath and, and enjoying a good wash. I think I probably dropped that analogy there. But um, Bad baby, you don't yeah. want to drop the baby into the bathwater. That's what you don't want to do. <laughs> Exactly. Your analogies. <laughs> we have a particular interest in the podcast, obviously, in the investment trust, not just you, but some of the listed property investment trusts. Uh, I've got a couple of questions there. I mean, we saw last year, we saw another big merger involving uh, LXI and Secure Income REIT, which I think you were investors in that before. What was your view? I mean, they've had a rough time since then. They're one of those ones that maybe have an issue with debt and refinancing balance sheet issues of the combined entity. And they're a very big listed property vehicle. So I'm interested in your thoughts on that one. And also, looking through the sector itself, there are some other smaller commercial property investment trusts which are trading on very high yields at the moment. You know, I'm thinking of things like um, AEW and regional REIT and things like that. I don't know if you own them or not. But do you think they're sort of vulnerable to the illiquidity issue? So there's two two points. I'm interested in your thoughts on LXI and also on uh, some of the smaller commercial property trusts. Yeah, so answering them in turn. So yes, we were large holders in Secure Income REIT. And we were large holders for two reasons. One, essentially, we felt that, you know, we, we'd long backers of the management team, Nick Leslau and Mike Brown for many years. They have, along with Sandy Gunn, the CFO, they had a huge amount of personal wealth in that business. Between them, I think it was more than a hundred million pounds. And therefore, you know, you, you were very much aligning yourself to a management team that were incredibly focused on making sure that when they exited, they exited at the, at the right time, the right price. And they both, Nick and Mike, are past masters having done this in Max Property. Uh, Burford, etc., many times. And that, that just a segue on this temporarily, you know, spotting high quality management teams and investing alongside them and making sure that you know, they are aligned is absolutely crucial to what we do. Because the thing in the world of real estate, a very small number of brains can run a very large amount of capital. That's what Nick and Mike had done. Now, their shares traded at a significant discount relative to LXI pre-merger and a discount to their NAV because they had quite an expensive debt structure. It was quite fixed and, you know, they've been learned valuable lessons from, from 2008. And I suppose in some respects, they probably consider they got lucky because they didn't know the speed at which market price of debt would move. So yes, we as a consequence owned for a while, well, we took a lot of cash on that, but we did own some LXI and then we sold that because we knew that this debt restructure that essentially LXI, which is a very well-run business, and of course, it still has Sandy and, and Nick on the board as non-execs. But there was quite, you know, we like the diversification of income and that long income. And a lot of it's obviously very secure, with, you know, 30 odd percent at RPI and 40 odd percent at CPI, plus some fixed increase as well. So you've got that top line growth. But actually, the problem for the company has been that there is this quite big debt restructure, which I think is probably getting reasonably close to being priced correctly by the market. Um, and that has been the reason why the stock has underperformed. And we would probably be looking to reinvest in the merged larger business in the future. But I absolutely applaud the merger because it did create, as you say, a much larger company, a much more liquid business, which offers that diversified long income and is, I think, you know, very attractive in the market in the type of market that we're going to be you know, going through in the next couple of years. They just, as with many others, 
just need to sort out that debt and that will have a short-term impact on, on earnings. Turning to the likes of AEW and the regional REITs, in the great world of real estate, essentially when something is has a, what appears to be an artificially high yield, uh, the chances are it's probably secondary or tertiary real estate where the market says, I need to be heavily compensated for the fact that this asset is secondary tertiary. I'm going to have to spend a lot of money on it at some point in the future or the tenant is rather weak, a one-man band or a small company or whatever. And therefore, the yield is much higher. Now, Jonathan, I know I'm teaching your listeners to suck eggs here, but it's an important point because particularly for the likes of regional REIT, we have a real concern about the acceleration in the level of obsolescence in, in office buildings. Now, Francis Solway, the chief executive of land securities many years ago, even wrote a book about it back in the early 90s. So this is, you know, obsolescence in, in buildings is nothing new, but it's been particularly accelerated um, around, obviously, the EPCs, the Energy Performance Certificate Program, which uh, essentially is regulation. It means that your building has to be graded from A to F, and by 2030, it needs to be in A or B for you to be able to, as a landlord, to let it to a new tenant. So a lot of these buildings are going to require... Um, uh, removal of gas boilers, replacement with electric boilers, improved uh, insulation, triple glazing, all sorts of different factors, which of course are vital as we seek to control global warming and are required. But the big issue here is that you know, I'm sitting here in the West End of London in a building where we're renting space at £65 a foot, and the landlord will spend money to improve this building in years to come. But if you're sitting in a, an office building in Hartlepool and the rent is eight to 10 to 12 pounds a foot or somewhere else like that, you know, the cost of the double glazing and the removal of the boiler and the replacement of the boiler, et cetera, et cetera. Yes, it's maybe a bit cheaper than it will be in central London. Obviously, labor's a lot cheaper, but fundamentally the piece of kit, the glass, the triple glazing is the same. And I really worry about, you know, the return on capital employed on some of these buildings because essentially the landlord's going to have to spend the money, but isn't going to be able to push the rent up. So that's a central issue. On top of that, then there is this liquidity point. And as I said, you know, we do anticipate more consolidation. Now, turkeys don't vote for Christmas often, particularly in these externally managed vehicles. So I absolutely applaud the board of Epic, Ediston and the management team for doing the right thing and saying, look, we're too small want to be part of a bigger animal. Let's make a statement, uh, the strategic review, and see what comes of that. And I'm hoping that we'll see more of that consolidation and less of the, you know, whilst the industrial REIT was a win for us because it was a windfall gain given the 40% premium to the undisturbed share price, as I said, you know, I'd rather these businesses remained in the listed space. But from an investor point of view, you kind of have a win-win because you know you've got an opportunity to buy into this sector where we think there will be more consolidation or potentially further take privates. I guess the other risk is when we've had big sellers in the past, we have seen property companies cut their dividends or reduce their dividends, either because they have to or because they choose to. We haven't seen much of that so far in this particular cycle. Though um, Phoenix Spray Deutschland was one of them and suspended its dividend, I think. And we've seen in one or two of the specialist areas, like uh, I think Target Healthcare have cut their dividend in that sector. Do you think, though, there is a risk that before this consolidation happens or uh, that there will be dividend cuts across the sector? Well, we have already seen them in German residential, for example. So if you have a low-yielding asset class, and residential is low-yielding because it's, you know, it's very secure... 
and has a long-term structural underpin. There's not enough of it, et cetera, et cetera. And, and the cost of debt rises from zero to 4%. Then, of course, you know these companies have ended up suspending their dividends. We've seen it in Sweden, again, where we've got very indebted businesses. I think in the case of Target Healthcare, that was quite particular to that business. It had been over-distributing since IPO. Is it continued to increase its dividend, even though it had raised more capital? And the thing about raising more equity is, um, you know, equity is an expensive animal needs to be fed. And I think in the case of Target, they realized that they were just going to get exposed and therefore they rebased. Do I expect to see a lot of it? Remember that the, you know, the mighty land sec and British land, both during COVID essentially cut their dividends. They restructured them to a, rather than to a fixed figure, announced that it would be a percentage of their net earnings. And that's the other way of doing it. So you end up not cutting your dividend, but potentially uh, developing volatility in it. But actually, amongst the UKs, one of the reasons we're so overweight the UK relative to Europe is we think that the UK has taken a lot of its pain, its medicine, because the, the V of LTV has come down very sharply. I mean, we had the Q4 IPD MSCI um, capital value falls were greater than Q3 2008 which you will remember was the quarter that Lehman's went down. So we've had a lot of correction. But what we come back to is, you know, essentially, if your top line is stable, and this is the central case, we think that kind of right back to the beginning of the podcast, we haven't got the other great sort of disease for property, which is overdevelopment, too much supply. We haven't got that. We think we've got a, quite a lot of earnings stability. We think recession will be, will be relatively shallow. So then you literally come back to who's got debt that needs to be repriced, who's got, you know, essentially coming off fixed onto floating and is going to experience a significant reduction in earnings. And there are some candidates for that. But for an awful lot of them, the fixed is at least averaging three, four, five years. So there's very little near term. And I think that's very important. Now, if rates are, let's say, base rate in the UK in 2025, going into 26 is five and a half percent or something, then yes, by then you, you've got a lot of refi that will be emerging. Even for those who had uh, very clever finance directors where she'd fixed in 2021 for five years, you know, those guys are, and girls are going to have an issue. But we are reasonably confident that rates will be coming down before then as, as inflation continues to be brought under control, you know, because the UK economy is not growing. So it's, you know, I think that you know, inflation is sticky for the moment, but we think it will continue to ease up once we start to look sort of three years hence. Well, I was going to ask you about your UK-Europe balance. You do run a pan-European strategy. And the UK is just roughly, I think, just nudging up towards half. UK equities are half the total of your portfolio. Is that very high relative to history? I mean, what's been the experience there? Since you've been investing, yeah, well, we switched to a pan-European strategy in, in 2000. So, you know, it's a, a long time ago. And uh, yes, we are definitely pushing up towards, I wouldn't say record, but yeah, historically high exposure to the UK. And I must probably reinforce before investors have reached to the sell ticket is that this isn't necessarily about an expression of the UK economy versus Europe and parts of Europe. This is actually much more about where uh, equities, real estate equities are priced and the relative risks within different markets. And I just would like to reinforce the 
big difference between the UK and Europe in terms of valuation is the Europeans have a very different model. They have what we call a mark-to-model rather than the UK mark-to-market. If you remember in 2008, the UK marked all its real estate down very hard, which drove a huge amount of deeply discounted rights issues, the major beneficiary of which was the partners of Casanova, who seemed to be on every deeply discounted rights issue. The Europeans just looked at us agog. It's like, why have you driven your numbers down artificially because you've got to remember that an NAV is just what you know a series of valuers think a valuation should be. It's not actually an actual market price. And the, the European model is very much one of smoothing. So what we're going to see in the UK is as interest rates do, if they do peak and start to come down, the cost of debt starts to come down, margins start to normalise once we realise that Credit Suisse was an individual bank-related issue rather than something more systemic. And what you'll see is a recovery. Uh, and we're already seeing it. We're already seeing competition. I mean, London Metric uh, announced the sale of 40, 50 million pounds worth of multi-let industrial out of Mucklow a week or so ago. And I know there was competitive bidding for that portfolio. And they actually achieved in excess of their September NAV for that. So, you know, at the end of the day, valuation is, is an art, not a science. But coming back to the point is we're going to see recovery in the UK, whereas Europe, which has decided to take its medicine in a teaspoon rather than a tablespoon or a bucket, and therefore, and it's exactly what happened in previous cycles. So that's really the, the essence of being long the UK. And then the other issue is you can't just look at it as a, a regional focus. It's about what you get in the UK that you don't get in Europe or vice versa. And at the moment, we know that German residential, these companies, the big ones, have got lots of refinancing coming. We think the prices are going to remain relatively subdued there. That's why we own the Phoenix Spree is our big relative overweight, with no debt refi. We own Venovia. It's a very big part of our benchmark, but we're not overweight relative to the benchmark. Uh, we don't own things like uh, Grand City and some of these very indebted names. But I do want exposure to logistics. Um, Seagrow is a big part of that. We do own London Metric, uh, Tritax Big Box. I want that long income stream that I can get through the likes of Supermarket Income REIT, which is, by the way, a classic case of a stock that has totally repriced. I mean, we were in the IPO at a pound. We sold all our shares last year at 124, and I've been buying them back at 85. You know, haven't hasn't been many winners, but it's nice to be able to talk about one. <laughs> Absolutely. So, Ben, you're saying that for whatever reason, and that includes valuation, there's better relative value in the UK in general than there is across the rest of Europe at the moment. Without going through exhaustively through all the different sectors, can I just ask you about the uh, TR Property Trust itself? The shares have come down a long way. As you said, you're on a discount and the things you own are on a discount to their reported NAVs anyway. We know that your NAV has been down sharply over the last 12 months, but you've paid a dividend which has risen every, uh, every year bar one, I think, for since uh, as long as I can remember. That's not going to change, presumably. No, I mean, TR, as you know, because you've been in this game a long time, stands originally for Touche Remnant, which was a fund management business that was acquired by Henderson back in, in the 80s. And then we've always kept the name, even though we've, we've changed management house. We now say that TR stands for total return. Obviously, Thames River was a bit in between, but, and essentially that's where the border away, you know, all listeners should remember that real estate, it's a value proposition rather than a sort of tech growth proposition. You know, the vast majority of your return at the underlying asset level comes from the income. 
you know, the capital account is much more volatile. The income account is relatively stable. And over 30, 40 years, it will form 75, 80, 85% of your total return because the capital goes positive, negative, et cetera. And you know, the board are acutely aware that dividend and income is a crucial part of what we do and what we deliver. And you know, the dividend yield is just a function of the share price. What we're looking at is the, obviously, is the, the, the pence per share. So yes, um, it remains a central part of what I'm trying to achieve. We don't know what the dividend this year is going to be. We've seen the interim. We haven't seen the full year. But last year, you paid a dividend of somewhere in the region of 12p, was it? Something like that? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And the share price of the day we're talking is somewhere around 280, something like that? Yeah. You, I know the maths you want to do. And the answer is, if you assumed that the, the board decided to pay the same dividend as last year in totality, then and you bought the shares today, then your full year dividend yield would be just under 5%. Right. Now, I'm not making a dividend forecast. No, we know that. It's not your job anyway. It's the forecast no, job like, to decide the dividend. And they're going to do that uh, in due course. But in terms of just 5%, then, okay. And uh, some people may assume that it will go up again next year by a small margin. We'll just have to see. But uh, basically, a 5% yield, obviously with inflation still over 10% in the UK. We need inflation to come down. But uh, how does 5% yield compare with you know where you've been across the many years you've been in charge of running this particular trust? It's almost a record high. You've got to go all the way back to the impact as a yield, as a percentage to 2009 and you know, the dark days of the GFC, where, of course, you've got, again, the double whammy of the discount of the underlying assets and then also where, where TR property itself have moved to a very deep discount as well. One of the major differences then is we were actually 20% cash. In the quarter before Lehman's went down, the trust was 20% cash. We were incredibly nervous because at the end of the day, this is as I would like to reinforce, you know, the TR is a, is a total return animal. So for me, it's important to try and minimize the capital loss as it is to maintain the dividend. And what, what would I do? I wouldn't, if I felt the market, you know, felt that we were going to have another very, very serious negative correction, I would rather move into cash, forego income by doing so and to explain to shareholders why the earnings had dropped and the dividend was essentially uncovered in the same way that I'm likely to remain owning, you know, there will be some businesses that have suspended their dividends and share prices have been absolutely smashed, but they're well worth owning, even though they're non-dividend payers, because actually we're going to see significant capital gain. So just to be totally clear, this business is not run for the income. I have an eye to that, and I appreciate that is a key part of anybody's desire to own a trust like ours, because ultimately, as I said, real estate is an income provider. But ultimately, we are a total return animal, and I will do what I think is right in shareholders' best interest to maximize total return or minimize total loss. So that just then brings me finally on to issue of gearing. I mean, you are an investor trust. You have the ability to put some gearing into the trust as well. I think you've still got some gearing. What's your thinking about that? How has that changed and how might that develop? Yeah, so I'm glad we've touched on this because I think right at the beginning, Jonathan, you mentioned that we do own a small portfolio of physical property in the UK, which has done us very well over many years. And I'm confident we'll certainly our industrial estate in Wandsworth, which where we have planning permission for a major development, will continue to stand us in very good stead. But essentially, my benchmark is an all equity benchmark. So if I have 8% of my assets in physical property, that's essentially outside of the benchmark. And therefore, if I have gearing of 8%, I'm essentially not geared to the equity market because I've got to pay for my physical property. So the fact that gearing today is 12%, 
which means I'm essentially slightly long the equity market. And that's, that's the way that we choose to look at it um, in order to, you know, because I'm measured in terms of the amount of alpha I can deliver against that benchmark. My view on gearing is we have a mix of fixed through some longer dated private placement, 26 and 27, uh, which you can see in the annual report, um, and some floating as well. Now, of course, that floating has become uh, much more expensive than it was. But at the same time, I'm seeing some really great opportunities in the market today. I mentioned supermarket income REIT. We could talk about stocks that many listeners will be familiar with, the largest property company in the UK being Seagrow. Share price peaked at £14. We started buying them back at £7.20. They're now £7.80. I think that's a you know very good business. I'm very happy to continue to own that. So I think gearing, um, we absolutely use gearing for what we should do, which is to give ourselves an opportunity to be geared into what we think is a rising market, but always with an eye to the fact that that gearing is much more expensive than it was 15 months ago. Well, that's all we have time for. I think my only final question, though, observation after having followed TR Property for so many years is the oddity is that you're the only one of your kind in the investment trust sector. Why do you think that is? Why aren't there more TR properties investing in property equities rather than investing directly or the way that they do? It's a very interesting question. And I think that just the creation of new investment trusts in a traditionally staid sector rather than a renewable infrastructure or some sort of depth, you know, whatever, you know, all new investment trusts have been created and exposed to some sexy new sector. We're not, and I'm certainly not sexy. So I think that's the honest answer. Other people have been nice enough to say, why would we create another one when we've got a very good one that already exists? But uh, I'm not going to take credit for that statement. Listeners can't see that Jonathan is chuckling in his study to that particular point. But all, all I can say is we are delighted to be alone in some respects because it means that we are then hopefully the point of choice when people want to get exposure to uh, to this market. I would just like to say that because I'm not on the board, I'm not able to ever say to investors you know, exactly what my personal holding is in the trust. But I think, you know, I have talked a lot about investing in companies where managers have skin in the game. And I very much, you know, after my house, my personal holding in TR property is my largest, uh, next largest asset. And I have continued to buy shares through 2022 and into 2023. In fact, the children's junior ices have just been um, topped up. Very good. Well, it's always good to hear people putting their money where their mouth is. We always say that. Very good. So that was Marcus Fairmuch, the manager of TR Property. So I was also glad this week to speak to John Forster, who is the co-portfolio manager of Impacts Environmental Markets, ticker IEM, which is a very interesting uh, vehicle in the investment trust space, notable particularly for the fact that it was one of the pioneers in what has now become quite fashionable uh, investing with um, an eye to environmental and other factors that we take much more notice of now than we used to do. So, John, you've been helping to run this portfolio, this uh, quite large trust now. I think it's getting on around a billion in market cap. And uh, you've been doing it for a good part of 20 years. So you're a pioneer. Perhaps you could just take us back and um, remind us what it was like when you started. You started quite small, I imagine. Uh, yes, all good things start from small bases. So uh, thanks a lot for having me, Jonathan. So, I mean, maybe to start with the original philosophy and kind of thesis that we saw was we strongly believed that environmental markets would outgrow the global economy. We believed that the combination of a need to increase the efficiency of the use of resources, 
the need to invest substantially in infrastructure for the cleaner and more efficient delivery of basic services. So if you think energy, water, food, for example, we thought that the need to solve some pressing environmental challenges, including climate change, but also pollution and other challenges, we thought that all of that was going to create a huge problem for the global economy, but that the companies providing the solutions would benefit from superior growth and that we could capture that as superior performance. So that was the original thesis when we launched in 2002. At that time, it was, in retrospect, quite a terrifying (laughs) opportunity. It was quite immature. We had 250 companies and it was dominated by alternative energy, speculative, unprofitable, very high volatility names. So it was a great idea, but very early stage. So if I kind of roll forward to today, all of that has completely transformed. So it's become much more global, much more diverse in terms of the sectors that we can invest in and much more pressing and compelling. So it's, you know, 250 universe of companies has grown to 1300. We've got $6 trillion of market cap to choose companies from. And we're now investing in a broad range of sectors, which I can get into a bit more detail. So it's it's really transformed over the, the last 22 years. So can I ask, just at a sort of personal level, you and your colleagues who started this, this obviously was, you saw this as a business opportunity, but were you actually also motivated by uh, some personal considerations as well? You know, Are you a bit of an eco-warrior, if I can put it out, perhaps not exaggerating it a little, but is it a personal conviction as well as uh, a business opportunity? The main driver was the business opportunity. So I was a generalist before doing buyouts and acquisition finance over in Germany. So I'd I'd seen, you you know, that Germany was the pioneer of environmental markets. They drove a lot of these markets early. So I'd seen what was changing over in Germany. But as much as anything, I wanted to kind of focus on a given area, become an expert. I wanted it to have growth. I saw this kind of superior growth story in the making. And yes, I was intrigued that maybe these companies were going to be doing good things rather than bad, because it's my strong conviction, as I've just said, that companies that are driving the economy in the right way can do good things and deliver superior performance at the same time. So I don't think it's a choice of one or the other in this case. Indeed, it's not. And you started off, as you say, with kind of a relatively immature portfolio. And uh, what was the market capitalization when you started? Well, when we first launched the fund, we launched with £50 million. That gives you an idea of where we started. The 250 companies, the aggregate market cap would have been, God, I have to try and think back of what the number was. It would be maybe $100 billion, that kind of number. So it was very small. And and the average market cap in in the portfolio was, you know, there was a lot of investments in the kind of $100 to $500 million. So it was a very small cap, very racy opportunity in, in the early days. But here's a funny thing, isn't it? I mean, if you look across the AIC uh, stats and the breakdown of performance and so on, and you look under environmental investment trusts, there really aren't that many, are there? There's only, uh, I think there's only three in your subsector anyway, and you're by far the largest. Obviously, you've been very successful. Others have perhaps struggled to grow for different reasons. Why do you think that is? Why are the investment trusts not been more uh, like you, given the way that the world has changed in the last uh, 20 years in terms of attitudes towards the environment and other factors? I mean, you're right. There's very little in the investment trust arena that does 
what we do. There are a lot of renewable infrastructure yield codes, which we can also talk about. That's not our focus because we're more growth oriented. But I think the history of environmental markets and trusts is that there were more, but there were some vehicles that struggled either by not having a diversified enough approach to investment, being too focused in a few given sectors, struggled to perform and ultimately closed or or got wound up. So, you know, we are where we are. I guess we're lucky that it's it's a pretty unique product in this environment. Well, it wasn't so long ago. We, uh, I mean, Lion Trust tried to bring one of their uh, trusts to market and uh, they could only raise $100 million and decide not to go ahead. So it is a interesting issue. Though, as you say, there are many other ways to capture a some of the things you're doing, either in specialist sectors or, of course, everybody says they've got wonderful ESG credentials these days. You can argue about that, I guess. So let's talk about then what you do now. You're a large trust. You've got a well-diversified portfolio, which is uh, structured along a range of themes. How would you sort of sum it up and why would people want to invest in it today? Okay, well, to stop at the end, the reason to invest in impacts environmental markets is for growth, is to access this long-term growth opportunity. We do also calculate a net environmental benefit from an investment in the trust. Uh, We've been doing that for years. I think we were one of the pioneers on that front. Um, So people get that as an outcome. But the, the reason to invest is growth. In terms of exactly what they're getting when they make an investment, um, we are investing globally in pure play companies with at least 50, but actually weighted average 80% exposure to environmental markets. And when we say environmental markets, as I said at the start, it's a diverse range of sectors, including new energy, clean and efficient transport, sustainable food and agriculture, water, circular economy, and what we call the smart environment. So it's a broad range of sectors, but with this pure play global focus. So that's what they're getting. There's other ways to think about it in terms of style and other bias. So while while I'm setting it out, from a size perspective, it is a small and mid-cap opportunity, but the weighted average market cap's $9 billion. So these are well-established, proven, profitable businesses. From a investment style perspective, you are getting quality and growth, uh, which we'll come back to when we talk about recent performance, etc. So it's a growth bias, but not growth at any price. So we don't invest in early stage, unproven, expensive concept stocks. Um, I guess we learned that that was not a good idea in the early days of IEM when the tech bubble burst, but it's, it's, that's not what you get when you invest in IEM. And then finally, from a GIC sector, we do have a bias, and it's towards industrials, utilities, technology, and materials. And you don't get any financials or energy. So you, you know, read from that value. We don't get a lot of value, and we don't have much healthcare. So there's quite a GICS bias, which gives you a kind of, call it an 8% tracking error compared to global equities and a slightly higher risk profile, but, but not by much. I hope that sets it out. Well, that brings us nicely onto the issue of what's been happening recently, because obviously some of those uh, style factors you mentioned and and sectoral choices you have, they have been uh, not the places to be in the last year in many cases, Uh, not in all cases, in many cases. And last year, you obviously, you had a a disappointing year by your standards. You had a lot of strong growth in the run-up to the start of last year. 
But last year was not so good, down sort of double digit, I think, uh, and a bit more. So I suppose the first question I might have to ask then is whether or not you think that the factors that drove that underperformance last year, you know, are they going to become permanent? Are we seeing a, a change in the investment environment whereby growth may switch to value? We've got higher bond yields. We've got all those kind of adverse factors. And we also had a period when some of the sectors you don't invest in uh, did actually quite well like uh, pure energy and mining and so on. So what can you say about the last year? And can you put that in context of, uh, of your experience of the last few years? Yes. So uh, as you said, 22 was a challenging year. We've just published the annual report, actually, so um, everyone can access and We've kind of gone through some detailed commentary on what was going on. The trust was down 15% and it was 7% behind the MSCI or Country World Index, a global comparator index, but 5% ahead of our sector benchmark, the ET100. But I think most people care about performance against global equities. And the main driver of the underperformance was this rotation out of quality and growth and and into value. So over the year, Acqui growth underperformed Acqui value by 23%. So it was pretty extraordinary. So what that led to was a very big derating of the portfolio from an admittedly high kind of mid-20s P to a now 19 times, which is much more in line with a long-term average. So you know, despite a strengthening investment case that we can also circle back on, we're back at a long-term average multiple, you know, reflecting this rotation. And despite, I'd say, pretty creditable delivery of earnings, you know, obviously, inflation has been a challenge. Managing supply chains has been a challenge, particularly for smaller companies. But overall, we feel that uh, the portfolio holdings did a good job and critically showed the pricing power that we were looking for. So rotation, the main driver, we do have cyclical exposures in the portfolio, particularly to areas like construction, which sits within buildings, energy efficiency and water infrastructure, for example, those areas were also weak against a weakening macro backdrop. So that's the lion's share of the challenges we faced last year in terms of, you know, where are we now? You know, I listened to a few of your previous podcasts and obviously everyone is seems very negative <laughs> about the current state of play and outlook. I mean, and it, it's true, there's a lot to worry about. You know, the war against inflation is not yet won. The banking crisis and the kind of crisis of confidence in financials is still, seems to be getting a little bit better, but it's still very much a live issue, as is the impact it's going to have on the real economy. So there's lots of reasons to be negative. But I think a lot of those impacts, I'd say, are quite reflected in the share prices of the portfolio holdings. You can argue how long interest rates are going to stay high, but in terms of how many more rate rises are we going to see, we're probably most of the way through a tightening cycle. So at some stage, there will be a rotation back towards quality and growth. Obviously, it's, the timing is uncertain, but that is what I'm interested in. And when it comes to these cyclical exposures that hurt us in 22 and a little bit in the tail end of Q1, 23, there's some pretty negative outcomes already priced into those names as well. So it's hard to call a turn, but it's you know with a portfolio valuation at long-term average levels, with a strong investment thesis, I'm more inclined to be maybe a bit more positive than some of the other people talking on your podcast. 
That was an extract of Jonathan's discussion with John Forster. Subscribers to The Moneymakers Circle can listen to the full conversation over at The Moneymakers website. Thank you for listening. The Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast is independently produced and edited and is listed on all leading podcast channels. You can also sign up at the website money-makers.co to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Please note these podcasts are provided for educational purposes only and nothing you have heard from any of the speakers should be regarded as constituting investment advice. If you want more news, analysis, interviews and other investment trust content, don't forget to look at the Moneymakers Circle, available now for a modest subscription at the website.